what happens when one dares to challenge the dominant narratives against China on international media? Maureen Hubel, an independent Australian researcher, knows her well. She has been challenging the relevant authorities in her country to substantiate their allegations of human rights abuses in Xinjiang, China, or that there is a growing threat of aggression from China, and she's been getting no answers. What happened? Welcome to a special edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin, coming to you from Shanghai. I had the pleasure to be joined from Melbourne, Australia, by Maureen and her husband, Robert Hubel, to hear their stories. Maureen and Robert, thank you very much for joining us. Tell us a bit, how did you get in interested in visiting China, especially Xinjiang, in 2024, which is next year? Why, how did this idea come up? It came about gradually. Um, it started with me observing growing poverty in Australia, and in particular, a large number of homeless people living on the streets. A lot of people couch surfing, a lot of people living in their cars. Um, it, it, it frightened me that a rich country, and we are, we are rich because we export so much iron ore to you, <laughs> to China, <laughs> it makes us rich. Um, uh, but we were, there was a sector that was growing and it was getting poorer and poorer. And I thought, we have to do something about this. And I thought, well, China has a reputation of poverty alleviation. Let's start by looking to see what of what's happened because I noticed a lot of the people on the streets they were so dispirited they had lost interest in life they had become uh, drug dependent because they wanted to anesthetize themselves from the pain of living on the street and they talk how hard it is to find food or go to the toilet or have a shower and these are ordinary people they're not they become drug addicts to ease their pain and I, I thought there's something wrong here. And here's China taking people out of poverty by the millions. And we, a rich country, we're going in the opposite direction. Higher inflation, we have um, high interest rates, uh, people struggling to find somewhere to live, being kicked out because they can't pay their rent. Um, I mean, we live in an affluent area, <laughs> but it's creeping in even to, into our area too. Uh, so I thought something must be done. But why do you particularly want to go to Xinjiang? Because there are many areas in China where poverty was alleviated. And uh, why did you took a special interest in, in that region? Because of its dramatic uh, change from, from living in mud um, caves or mud, I don't know, mud, mud hovels um, uh, to now living in comfortable houses. Uh, they've gone from extreme poverty to, you know, it's more dramatic in Xinjiang. Um, and I have some very good sources. Um, and I, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. I get given a lot of videos. And I just thought, this, this is a wonderful place, what they've done. It's miraculous. I want to go and learn about it. So that's how I came into it. And then, of course, I heard later that, oh, there's a genocide going on. I said, oh, that's interesting. Uh, <laughs> How can the population grow and the, and the GDP grows? <laughs> and I get all these videos of all these happy Uyghurs dancing. I thought, what kind of genocide is going on? Um, and from a prima facie point of view, it looks most unlikely. And I'm not afraid to go to Xinjiang. 
I know that there's high security because they've had real terrible terrorism up until 2017, but it has been controlled. Uh, so I'm comfortable in going. We've been we've been into much worse places yes. in the past. <laughs> you know, we've been to Honiara when the Solomon Islands was at war. We've been in Kiev. Uh, you know, when the well, I think Ukraine's always been in a hot, hot or soft war with each other. Um, so we've been in very difficult situations, and, and I feel very comfortable to go to Xinjiang. I tell you, I've been to Xinjiang. It's it's nothing compared to those areas. It's absolutely safe to go anywhere. Um, but anyway, uh, Robert, um, how do, how much do you support your wife's ideas and interests? Are you also going to Xinjiang? Also interested in going to Xinjiang? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm uh, financing it, <laughs> and um, and both um, both of us are going along with our daughter Marianne. So um, she'll be the the little interpreter for us. <laughs> so your and, daughter um, is speaking yeah, Chinese. So she, she's able I'll, to speak Chinese. I'll be taking the videos and um, doing that sort of thing. Um, Maureen will be the one doing the interviews um, with the cadres, and uh, and and Marianne will help us where she can. Is there any institution behind you, or are you doing this out of your pure? intellectual interest, you know, personal curiosity, um, yeah. Well, actually, I did start off, we have an Australian National University, and it has, uh, or it did have, a very vibrant China in the world unit that was directly funded by the Australian government. But that's virtually been kiboshed, and so during the Morrison government, the principal who was going to be uh, I was going to ask her to be my supervisor uh, for academic reasons. She got virtually sacked uh, because she had spoken about the doubts as to the story about the Uyghur punishment. She she was not allowed to. Yeah, tell us a bit more about what is being said about Xinjiang, for instance, on the media, on the mainstream media in Australia, and what. Uh, what did you try to ask for, and why do you think um, the, the the head of the China program in Australia National University is virtually sacked? What is the story? Well, the story as I see it, I don't know. I can only, you know, work try and work it out. But I think this uh, source is from America. Um, and it's almost like a, a vilifying people to manufacture consent for war. Uh, war is an ongoing thing with America, uh, not the American people, but the American government. War, one war ends, another war begins. Uh, and there's a lot of talk about, oh, we've got to protect Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan is its own sovereignty, its own country. Um, this has to be protected at all costs. In the press in Australia, yeah, even on even things like the ABC, um, we have. I won't name the person, but he was talking to Taiwan, who currently were the government. They've changed government now, and he would say, uh, "Are we doing enough militarily to protect you?" This kind of conversation, this kind of nonsense. I mean, as if Taiwan never belonged to China, as if there were no dynasties, as if there was no 
Japanese invasion into Taiwan and before that Dutch invasion. Nobody knows the background of Taiwan. Um, and I think that's a problem because fundamentally the public education systems don't reach out to critical thinking, to thinking, well, what's the history of this? What's, you know, who, I, I believe that the, the documents that are being told exist that China has been connected to Taiwan for centuries. The fishermen have, have, have fished in the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait, and they've harbored in Taiwan. And we're going back centuries before Australia existed, before America existed. Uh, so I can't understand why everyone doesn't logically think of Taiwan as being part of China. The history is there, but nobody knows it. Robert, what is your um, understanding? What is your view on what uh, Maureen just talked about? Do you share her opinion? How do you see it? The, the, kind, of, the kind of stories that are being told on the Australian media and uh, the, the fact that people are not questioning some of the obvious questions, obvious statements. Well, it's, it's quite clear that uh, there is a narrative that's being pushed by the Americans. Uh, the American economy uh, benefits significantly by selling arms to other countries, uh, more so than any other country in the world. And if they can't sell it, um, uh, use it themselves to, um, against other countries, then they find friendly countries like Australia to buy it from them to make more profits to the, the military industrial complex. And, and that's basically what's happened with, um, with the US today, with, with the signing of the, the AUKUS agreement and, and then the, uh, the, the uh, seeking the nuclear submarines from the US. Um, it, it could have quite easily have been um, the, uh, a, a French submarine that was, was nuclear if that was the requirement. The French had a model that could do that, um, but it appears that um, the old ANZUS Treaty has been brought out. As Keating says, the marriage certificate has been brought out and we need to keep on showing it and, and saying that we want to uh, uh, turn up and, and, and continue to be in the favour of the US, probably because Australia thinks that, um, that we are still... Um, so dependent on the US for help if if a problem occurs. Now, the reality is that um, if the US was to help us um, in, in a, a time of crisis, it would take them about 48 hours to 96 hours to get their people over here so, um, and, and to assist us. And in any um, real serious situation, it's all over in that time, you know, like, <laughs> so um, I, I think um, America is concerned about its own self-interest with its economy. Uh, the U.S. economy relies on arms. And, and, I mean, they're a gun-shooting type place where it has the highest murder rate um, anywhere in the world. And, and I don't think that will change, um, that they want to remain in charge. And, and it, it's sad that they bring out this card that says um, uh, looking after um, rule-based order. So um, it's got to be designed by America. Yeah, the rules have to be laid down by the US, you know, but but they don't have to abide by them. You know, like uh, 
a lot of countries are actually quite smaller countries are actually quite scared of the US now because of what they've done to Russia. Um, the, the fact that Russia had money in the World Bank and and they actually uh, stopped them from having it back in the Federal uh, Reserve you mean, yeah is, is, is if they can do it to Russia, they can do it to any small country, you know so um, so that's that's why we're moving towards this um, multipolar world. And we're moving away from providing the U.S. banking system with a, a clip of world trade in using the U.S. dollar as the trade. And we can see that that trend has accelerated with the agree, agreement between China and um, Saudi Arabia. We can see that with the agreement that's happened between Russia and China, even India to some degree. You know, so we can see that a lot is happening and, it's, and, and, and what, what they can see is that it's actually um, accelerating the, uh, the multipolar environment that is going to be created. And as a result of that, we will find that, um, that, that maybe the world will be a better place. Hmm. I think BRICS too is, is, is another sign that we have to look at a multipolar world. Uh, and I don't think America um, is not is not fit to be a unipolar force because of the sanctions that hurt, hurt and harm the world, and a lot of them backfire, and no one suffers more internally than the American people. Maureen, you try, have you tried to ask the authorities, either the press or the inst institutions such as the ASPE, uh, for evidence substantiating their claims, for instance, that there is genocide against Uyghur people in Xinjiang or that China is a coming threat, that there may be war in the next two, three years? Have you asked for evidence and what kind of response have you been given? Well, I ask uh, people like Penny Wong, who who was not long ago made a statement of giving sympathy and empathy to the cruel treatment of the Uyghurs, and I, I contacted her on a number of occasions, and I said, can you substantiate this? And if you can't substantiate it, please be cautious. And I also told her that there was litigation going on in the States for defamation and the harm done to Xinjiang and the cotton growers. Um, and we don't want to be embroiled in such a, you know, such litigation. Uh, seek the truth and, and hold back until you know the truth. And I have to say, she has been quieter. There is a slow turn. Um, I, I, I'm not the only one. There are other people that uh, think the same as I do. We might be in the minority at this stage. But we're, we're, we're looking at being friends with China. We're economically interdependent. Um, and... To, to have a bad relationship doesn't make sense economically or even security. You know, I mean, Dan Andrews signed a memorandum of Belt and Road, that's our premier in Victoria, and he's ridiculed for it. He has to cancel it. And instead, you know, why aren't we doing the same thing and saying to China, we'll join you, we'll join up with the Belt and Road. You know, we'll, we'll lead a more prosperous life rather than having all these wars and decimation. Yes, and the, and the Belt and Road really helps both countries. It, it doesn't just, it's not a one-way thing. 
the, the, the infrastructure that's being provided will, will benefit two-way trade significantly. And you, we can see that that's already happening with the railways that have been opened up to Laos and, and, and extending through uh, the, those countries next to China that have been just recently opened up. That's, that's fantastic. And, um, you know, uh, the old saying is you build the road and they will come. <laughs> yeah, well, and, we'll and, come. And, and you look at the trade from the old Silk Road um, that, that when, when they set the railway up, I don't know, around 2004 or thereabouts, um, you can see that the trade has, 50, multi, uh, the annual trade has gone from the first year to 15 or even more times the trade. In, in its, and it's in nearly a trillion dollars now of trade between, you know, down through to Europe from, I think it's Dusseldorf, I'm not sure. But um, uh, yeah, so uh, going to that, uh, to Germany and the other um, countries that it's extending to from China has a two-way benefit. And, and from a securitization point of view, um, if uh, the, the ship trade is somehow blocked, they have an alternative route. And, which is the uh, the railway system, and and that's why um, chi China is so interested in making sure that Xinjiang is profitable, um, and and the standard of living is risen because it is the gateway to the Belt and Road or the Silk Road as I call it um, into Europe, which is really um, benefits both both those continents, both China and the European trade. Actually, a question on ASPI. Uh, ASPI is funded substantially by the American government. Uh, arms manufacturers, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin. So immediately you've got foreign interference in Australia. That's a public, publicly known. So whenever they say something, I'm thinking, who's talking? Is this Australia or is this America? I, I can't understand how we can have a strategic think tank that is so influenced by another country. Um, I have been reading about uh, news stories in Australia, which um, is quite alarming to me. Correct me if I'm wrong, which, again, people are sounding this alarm about China's imminent aggression or that there is a war, there may be a war, this, this war talk. How do you how significant is that voice? How how dangerous or maybe you think it's just a small voice that it's not a big problem or how do you think it is a very dangerous voice that's being amplified right now uh, among the Australian press and the general public? Unfortunately it has permeated the general public. Um, everyone thinks China is evil and of course to um, the first step you do when you want to wage war is vilify your opponent. So you manufacture consent for war. Um, and a lot of people believe war with China is inevitable. Uh, and I find this most ridiculous. Can, can they substan substantiate their claim that war with China is eminent, that China is the villain? Can they substantiate? No, they can't. What I don't understand, and I've asked our politicians to substantiate what they're saying. Um, they say China is being aggressive. People don't see America as the aggressor. I do. I see America as the aggressor. And Australia is being carried along with it. I, I think if we look back, 
um, America really was a genuine ally to Australia in World War One and World War Two. Quite frankly, we probably wouldn't have won those wars if it wasn't for the American involvement. So we looking, we've looked to them and grown up as they're the heroes. Uh, you know, they're the great protectors. But, but things have changed. And I think that the military industrial complex has actually got a taste of World War II, of making a lot of money, of having its allies pay a lot of money over a long time. The British Empire fell. America became the, the greatest power. And I think that they got a taste of it, a taste of this acute wealth, and they wanted to continue it. And they've got manufacturing plants that need to be fed. What is the kind of political pressure on you for being outspoken, for having these opinions? Um, is there political pressure on you, especially, I understand, you know, you are called a pro-China propaganda bot. Your account was even suspended uh, temporarily. Um, how does that feel? How much pressure is on you for, for, for saying these things, for having these opinions and expressing them? Uh, th there is quite a lot of pressure. Uh, but the more pressure I've had, I thought, well, I want to find the truth. I'm a scholar. I want to find the truth. Uh, I don't take it seriously. You know, if they call me a bot or shrill or a sophisticated Chinese propagandist, I don't take those words seriously. They're their words. They're not mine. Because they say it, it doesn't make me that. So I tend to block them or ignore them. It doesn't worry me. Politically, I was meeting with our federal representative the other night because our daughter was getting an award for her community, um, giving to the community. Um, and I, I went over to her and I said, look, I'd love to talk to you about Xinjiang and the statements that the government is making uh, about the Uyghurs. She said, look, I can't talk to you about that. Uh, I can't. I'm going to refer you to my assistant. I can't comment on what you're doing. I can help your daughter with what she's doing, and I'd love to promote her, but I can't help you. Why do you think this is such a taboo subject, or that people are afraid to ask questions to challenge the mainstream narrative, Maureen? I've asked myself that. What coercion are we having from America? Um, is it because they give us life-saving drugs that we can't manufacture ourselves? Is it because we've signed the ANSYS Treaty? Um, I can't understand why our politicians go along with such nonsense. And, and, and we've got Albo now trying to explain why we have to put all this money into these uh, attack submarines. When Paul Keating made a very sensible statement, we just need defense submarines. We're not a military power. We don't want to play these games. And I've put to our government that the American interests are in conflict with the Australian interests. Now, there is, and I've been told confidentially, there is internally a beginning to think. Uh, and I may or may not have had an influence, but I certainly have tried to, to get people to think, is this a true story? Is this based on fact? And where, and can you substantiate it, please? So I've done a lot of work in asking them for substantiation, especially on Xinjiang. I'm saying, well, give me the evidence, please. I'm, I'll take whatever you know and what you ever have, but I get silent. We're also trying to look at how how um, Australia can grow up and be more of an adult in the room. You know, at the moment, it seems to be the the follower, the the child that has to listen to a master or to the parent. 
and they're looking to America to be that parent. Now, Australia needs to create its own identity. It needs to make sure that it positions itself correctly as a slightly more neutral defensive situation where it is the adult in the room. And that's, that's quite important for it to build on the relationships that it has in the Asia Pacific, um, China included, being the largest trading partner, but also with, with the, um, the, the smaller nations and, and Indonesia in particular, because you know Indonesia is, is, is a fast growing, developing country that has a lot of opportunities for Australia and we are its closest trading partner. Well, I've taken a lot of your time. Thank you so much. It's been a very interesting conversation. I've certainly learned a lot. Robert and Maureen Hubel, thank you very much for joining us on The Point. And I wish you success with your planned trip to Xinjiang and other parts in China, possibly. Thank, thank you, you very, very much. much. And that's it for this special edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin, coming to you from Shanghai. On behalf of the whole team, thank you for watching. You've got The Point.